Brothers and sisters, this book, the Bible, is the word of the living God. The God who identifies himself, as I just read a few days ago in Isaiah 65, as the God of truth. This is the truth of God. Jesus referred to the Bible in his high priestly prayer when he prayed to his father and he said, sanctify them, your people, in your truth. Your word is truth. This book tells us everything we need to know as to how uh, everything we need to know about God in this life, everything we need to know about how to be in right relationship to God and how to live out a relationship that is pleasing to God. Everything for those purposes is contained in this revelation of God to man, the Bible. But that doesn't mean that we can comprehend everything that God has revealed in this book. God's mind is infinite, and our minds are very small and finite. And among several things that we cannot fully wrap our minds around, as I mentioned last time, there are two truths revealed in the Bible which we cannot reconcile in our finite minds. And they are the absolute sovereignty of God, that God is in control of everything, God has predetermined everything that happens, even the salvation of individual sinners, reconciling that to the full responsibility of man is frankly impossible for us to do. <clears throat> but there's a word that describes that, and I want to introduce the word to you if you don't know it. It's a helpful word. It's not a biblical word, but it's a helpful word. It's the word antinomy. Anti, which means against, and the Greek word nomos, which means law. Anti-nomos, two things that seem to be against one another, two truths that seem to be contrary to one another, but really are not. Though we cannot reconcile them, they're reconciled in the mind of God, that God is absolutely sovereign and man is fully responsible. This is illustrated when we come to consider those who are responsible for the death of Jesus. Acts 2.23, in his Pentecost sermon, Peter says to his fellow Jews, this man, referring to Jesus, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The question I asked last time, who killed Jesus? In a real sense, we can say God the Father was responsible for the death of Jesus. He was delivered up unto death by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah 53.10 prophetically even says of Jesus, but the Lord Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. But on the other hand, we know that human agents were responsible for the death of Jesus. And they will bear the guilt and punishment for that greatest crime ever committed on planet Earth, the crucifixion of the Son of God. And from Mark 15, 1 to 15, which is our text again this morning, we're looking at the human instruments that were responsible for the death of Jesus. Last time, we considered the role that Pilate played, the Roman governor. Remember that he was convinced that Jesus was innocent 
He was convinced that the charges brought by the Jewish leaders against him were false. And he tried desperately to have Jesus released. But in the end, he caved. He capitulated to the crowd out of self-interest. And he delivered an innocent man to die. Well, today, we're going to look at the role of the priests and the people in sentencing Jesus to death. And our text, again, is Mark 15. Follow as I read the first 15 verses. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, as you say, the chief priest began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them any one prisoner whom they requested. The man named Barabbas had been imprisoned with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the insurrection. The crowd went up and began asking him to do as he had been accustomed to do for them. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him. But Pilate said to them, why? What what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Let's consider first the role of the priests in sentencing Jesus to die. If the Romans were responsible for executing Jesus, and they were, and they will bear the guilt for that, The Jewish religious leaders, especially the chief priests, were more guilty. In John 19, 11, we read these words of Jesus spoken to Pilate. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. And that would have been Caiaphas, the chief priest. We see that the chief priests of Israel were responsible, culpable, guilty for sentencing Jesus to die. And I want to show you four stages of their culpability or guilt in the death of Jesus. First, consider the priest's animosity toward Jesus. In our society, we rank the crime of murder according to degrees. The worst form of murder, deserving of the worst punishment, is first-degree murder, or as they say, murder one. What that means in the case of murder one is that there's malice aforethought. First degree murder means there's deliberation. There's premeditation. It was a purposeful, planned out murder. It did not just happen in the heat of the moment. Well, that by that standard, friends, the murder of Jesus by the chief priests of Judaism was murder one to the nth degree. Their hatred of Jesus was long-standing, deep-seated, and it was sinfully motivated. It was long-standing. When you read the Gospels, you realize that there was never a time 
when the Jewish leaders embraced Jesus, never a time when they did not look at him with suspicion. In fact, their opposition to Jesus really began before Jesus even came on the scene. When his forerunner, John the Baptist, came, they, those Jewish leaders were coming ostensibly to be baptized by him, but John saw through their hollow hypocrisy, and he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. And they did not believe John. And then when Jesus came, they did not believe him. They opposed him from the very beginning of his ministry. Their opposition to Jesus was long-standing. It was also very deep-seated. It was not one of mild irritation with Jesus. It was not merely a difference in some theological distinctives or emphases. You see, the various Jewish sects, Jewish sects, the Sadducees and Pharisees, they had some differences between themselves, as you know. But they tolerated one another. They even coexisted on the same Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. But they did not tolerate Jesus in that same way. They sensed in Jesus that there was a different spirit in Jesus. They said of Jesus, you're, of, you're demonized, you have a demon. Jesus, in turn, would say to them, you're of your father, the devil. There was this deep-seated antagonism between Jesus and the religious leaders. What was it other than what was promised way back in the book of Genesis? The antagonism between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Those religious leaders were of the seed of the woman. They were of their father, the devil. And Jesus comes as the seed of the woman. And there's that antagonism that comes to full bloom when Jesus comes on the scene. So their antagonism was long-standing, it was deep-seated, and it was sinfully motivated. Why did they hate Jesus? Our text tells us they were envious of Jesus. He was becoming too popular with the masses. He was robbing them of their position and their um, um, popularity. You see, these, <clears throat> these religious leaders were not in that position to serve and to benefit the people. They were in it to gratify their own egos and to satisfy their own lusts and their own greed. And Jesus was a threat to them. At the root of their hatred of Jesus, at the root of their self-serving, self-interested, and self-protective ways was their self-righteousness. You see, Jesus came as a savior to sinners, but they did not see themselves as, themselves as sinners. He said, I'm a physician who come to heal the sin-sick, they saw themselves as spiritually healthy. So they had no ears for Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> they had no time for Jesus because of their self-righteousness. But we further see the role of the priests in the death of Jesus when we consider the priests' arrest of Jesus and accusations against him. Animosity seethed in their hearts. They were just looking for an opportunity to seize him and have him put to death. Finally, when Judas came on the scene and agreed to betray him, they had their opportunity. And so what do they do? They illegally arrest him. They hastily convene an illegal middle-of-the-night session of the Sanhedrin. They put Jesus on trial. And the Jewish court, with the high priest in authority, charges him with two, two charges, blasphemy, and insubordination against Rome, both of which were capital crimes. 
Blasphemy was deserving of death under the Mosaic law. And to be an insurrectionist against the Caesar, against the king, was also a capital crime worthy of death. And so the charges they brought against Jesus were deadly charges. They were also deceitful charges. Remember how they brought false witnesses to testify against Jesus. They themselves were deceived in not believing that he was the God-sent Messiah. And remember how they sought to deceive Pilate. They represented Jesus as king, as if he was a political, military king that would be a threat to Caesar. He was not that kind of king. They were deceitful in the way they represented Jesus. Have you heard the little adage, when a half-truth is presented as the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. They were deceitful charges, and they were damnable charges. Can you imagine God coming to this world in human flesh and these religious leaders condemning him to death as a fraud? No greater crime could ever be committed on planet Earth than that. Years ago, C.S. Lewis wrote a series of essays entitled God in the Dock. And what it was about was the idea that modern human beings, rather than seeing themselves as standing before God in the judgment, God being the judge, man dares to put God in the dock and stand as his judge. That's what they were doing with Jesus. But further aggravating the guilt of the religious leaders, we see the priest's agitation of the people against Jesus. Look again at our text, verses 9 to 11. Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. You know, guilt is always deepened when there's additional light given. An opportunity to repent is spurned. And the guilt of these chief priests is heightened when the Roman governor pushes back at them. They bring these charges against Jesus to Pilate, and Pilate begins to push back. Pilate recognizes these charges are, are, are not true. Jesus is not guilty. That would have been an opportunity for them to check themselves and to think, wait a minute, if even this pagan ruler is finding no guilt in him, maybe we ought to second guess what we're doing in bringing Jesus to him for execution. But the die was cast and there was no reconsideration, and they pushed forward, and they stirred up the people against Jesus. <clears throat> you see, the Jewish religious leaders held great sway over the people. They did so not because they were loved by the people or respected by the people, but they were feared by the people. They intimidated the people because they had the authority to kick the people out of the synagogues. Listen to several statements from the Gospel of John. John seven thirteen. When some people were saying about Jesus that he was a good man, we read, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. In John 9, 22, his parents, the parents of the blind man Jesus healed, said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, Jesus, to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. 
John 12, 42, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. The Jewish leaders held great sway over the people. When you're in a position of power and authority, you exercise great influence. Now, on the one hand, you're in a position to do a lot of good, but you're also in a position to do a lot of evil. And what a terrible use these Jewish leaders made of the authority and power they had. The people were probably favorably disposed toward Jesus. Some of those there were probably some of those who welcomed Jesus in the triumphal entry with Hosanna. And they were probably favorably uh, disposed toward Jesus. But these chief priests, in their wickedness and in their hatred of Jesus, stirred the people up into a lather and turned them against Jesus. That further aggravates their guilt in the sentencing of Jesus. But then, finally, regarding the guilt of the priests, consider the priests' antagonism and intimidation of Pilate. When they brought Jesus to Pilate, they accused him of being a king, Pilate looked at Jesus, as we noted, with incredulity, with skepticism. Are you the king of the Jews? You could tell that Pilate wasn't believing that he was this insurrectionist and this freedom fighter that they were making him out to be. And when the Jews were sensing that Pilate was going to be soft, they ratcheted up their accusations. It says they accused him of many things. But you know what really was the straw that broke the camel's back? that caused Pilate to deliver Jesus to death. It's not in Mark, but it's in John 19, 12. Listen to these words. The Jews, the Jewish leaders said to Pilate, if you release this man, Jesus, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. They pretended that they were looking out for Caesar's kingship. Friends, what blatant hypocrisy was that? The Jewish leaders cared nothing for Caesar. They hated him as a a pagan idolater, but they were pretending to be protecting Caesar's kingship and seeing Jesus as a threat to that. That's what pushed Pilate over the edge. In a sense, they were intimidating Pilate in their manipulative way and saying, Pilate, if you free this man, Jesus, then you'll be an enemy of Caesar, who is your boss, and you will lose your job, you will lose your power, lose your authority, lose your position, your prestige, your income, your cushy, plush, and elegant lifestyle. And that was too much for this unprincipled, self-serving, moral coward, and so Pilate delivered Jesus to be killed. But the greater sin, as Jesus says, belonged to the chief priests. And so here we have the role of the priests in sentencing Jesus to die. Was Pilate guilty for the death of Jesus? Yes. Were the chief priests even more guilty for the death of Jesus? Yes. Their bitter animosity toward Jesus, their lying accusations against him, their manipulative agitation of the crowd to turn the crowd against him, and their shrewd antagonism and intimidation of Pilate 
make them guilty as well. Let's take away a few applications before we consider the role of the people. First of all, from a big picture standpoint, from a redemptive historical perspective, see how great is the guilt of the Jewish leadership and the Jewish nation of the death of Jesus. How wicked they were. God was among them in the flesh. They were the religious leaders. They were the students of the scriptures. They rejected him, condemned him to death as an imposter. Can it be any wonder then that 40 years later, God brought his just wrath upon the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD? The temple was destroyed. The people were scattered. Many were killed and crucified. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But from a more personal perspective, see how deadly is the sin of self-righteousness. What caused these chief priests from the beginning to hate Jesus and oppose him and plot his death? The root of their selfishness was self-righteousness. They saw themselves as good and holy before God. And Jesus came with a message that I'm a savior of sinners. I'm a physician for souls. They had no use for that because they didn't see themselves as sinners. It was their self-righteousness that kept them from Jesus and their self-righteousness which caused them to turn the people against Jesus. And dear friends, may I say that it is always self-righteousness that will keep someone from Jesus. And I ask the question, are any of you this morning being kept from coming to Jesus if you are, it is likely because of your self-righteousness that you don't see that you need a Savior. Do you really believe, you, you know in your heart that there's a judgment. The Bible says it and you know it. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And your conscience tells you you're going to die and you're going to stand before God someday. He's the judge, not you, not me. Do you really believe that you can stand before God in the judgment and pass muster with him and be welcomed into the presence of an infinitely holy, perfect God by your own goodness and righteousness? Dear friend, if you believe that, you've been lying to yourself. And I plead with you to forsake that lie and see yourself as the rest of us have come to see ourselves as needy, guilty, hell-deserving sinners who need the perfect life that Jesus lived and the death that he, he died to pay for sins such as ours. And I would plead with you to not be kept from Jesus by your own self-righteousness as the chief priests were, but to come to Jesus and trust him. But then another application here, take to heart the responsibility that comes with authority and power. These religious leaders held great power over the people, Power and authority means influence, and they use their influence for evil. Some of us are in various positions of power and authority. Let us not be like the chief priest who used their influence to, to lead people away from Jesus rather than to him. <clears throat> Let us use our influence to lead people to Jesus and to God. Some of us are husbands. That's a position of authority. The husband is the head of his wife. 
And we are called to nourish and cherish our wives as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. There's a sense in which our wives will flourish to the degree that we nourish and cherish them, especially if you have a believing wife. She will be a reflection of you, Christian man, Christian husband. Let us nourish them. Let us cherish them. Let us love them increasingly as Jesus loves the church, that they might flourish under our leadership. Let us use that position of authority and power as heads of our wives to do them good. Many of you are parents. That's a position of authority. God has put you over your children. May God give you grace to do as the scriptures say, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, to be good examples of, uh, to them, to lead them to Christ. Now, that's what we're called to do. We're not responsible for the outcome. We're not responsible for what they do with what they have received. <clears throat> and many of us, you know, would like to do it over again. We, we all fail in many ways as parents. We can't do it over again. What we can do is go back and ask forgiveness for those things we didn't do well and cleanse our conscience. For those of you who are parents still of young children, use your authority to do them good and to lead them to Christ and not away from him. And then this is true of the church. Some of us have authority in the church as we are considering a new elder in the church James 3.1 says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, because those who teach will receive a stricter judgment. Now, that is not intended to keep people from seeking leadership in the church, but it is intended to make us very sober-minded and very humble for fear that we mislead the people of God. Let not many of you become teachers, because those who teach will receive a stricter judgment. If I am wrong for myself, that's one thing. But if I teach others my error, I'm wrong for a lot of people, and that will bring a stricter judgment upon me. And so in Acts 20, 25 to 27, as the apostle addresses elders in the Ephesian church, he says, and now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The apostle Paul was conscious that there could be blood on his hands if he failed to teach the truth or if he taught error. And he was very conscientious of the fact that he didn't want that blood on his hands. He wanted to be faithful to give God's word to his people, the full counsel of God, so that he would be able to stand with a good conscience before the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jewish leaders used their authority and power in a wicked way to turn people away from Jesus, may we use the authority God has given us in a good way. Oh, let me just add, aside from husbands, aside from parents, aside from pastors, some of you are leaders in business. And you have authority, you have power. And there are those under you. That's a wonderful opportunity to influence them for the gospel. By being examples of godliness, by making rules and standards for your company that honor God, by being kind and considerate of those under you. It's, not, it's good to be in a position of management because you have the opportunity to influence people for good in the name of Christ. But now let's secondly 
consider the people's role in the sentencing of Jesus. We see that the death of Jesus ultimately is attributable to the will of God. He was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God the Father arranged for the death of Jesus. But we are seeing that human instruments were also responsible. Pilate was responsible and guilty. The Jewish leaders were responsible and guilty. Now we consider the third party responsible for the death of Jesus, and that is the people. The people. And come back to the text, beginning at verse 9, and we read, Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He was aware that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. Answering again, Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, and this is the crowd now, crucify him. But Pilate said to them, oh, "What? Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. <clears throat> Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Yes, the Jewish leaders bear the bulk of the guilt for the death of Jesus. But here we have blood on the hands of the people in the crowd as well. It was the crowd who asked for Barabbas to be released. It was the crowd that Pilate addressed when he said, then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And it was the crowd that answered, crucify him. And then in light of Pilate's hesitation, why, what evil has he done? It was the crowd that shouted, all the more, crucify him. Now, when we seek to ascertain guilt, there's a correlation between guilt and knowledge. The more you know and the more truth you reject, the more guilty you are. Jesus spoke this principle in Luke 12, 47, 48, when he said, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. If you have a lot of knowledge and you reject it, that's more serious. You will get worse judgment. If you have less knowledge, you will receive less punishment. And in the matter of the death of Jesus, it's clear that the Jewish leaders bear the most guilt. Why? They had the most knowledge. They were the students of the, of the law. They knew the word. They were the ones who should have recognized Jesus as the Messiah when he came. But what about the people? Were they guilty? I think the answer is yes. For two reasons I'll give. First of all, the people surely were familiar with Jesus' holy and benevolent ministry. The crowd that was gathered for that feast, the Feast of Pentecost, came from all over the Roman Empire, all over Palestine. There were Jews from Galilee in the north. There were Jews from Judea. There were Jews there in places where, from places where Jesus had conducted his ministry. And Jesus had ministered to vast multitudes of people. He had looked with compassion upon the multitudes. Sometimes he showed compassion for their souls by teaching them. At other times, he showed compassion for their bodies by healing them or, or feeding them. At times, he showed compassion for both their souls and their bodies by delivering them from oppressive demons. 
And surely there were people there who knew of Jesus' ministry, maybe some who had partaken firsthand of his ministry. They knew that, as Peter says in Acts 10 to the household of Cornelius, that he was one anointed by God who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Surely the people in general knew about Jesus. They knew what a kind, compassionate um, healer he was, what a, what a powerful, truthful teacher he was. And therefore they share in the guilt of crying out for him to be crucified. But then a second reason for the guilt of the people in general they allowed themselves to be persuaded by their leaders. <clears throat> now, again, the chief priests bear the lion's share of the guilt because they turned the people against Jesus. How did they do that? Well, the people probably had the same idea of Messiah that the leaders had taught them, that Jesus, that the Messiah was going to be a military leader, he's going to come as a conquering king, and the Jewish leaders would have been able to point to Jesus and say, look, he's bruised, he's battered, he's in the bonds of Roman authority. That, that's your king? And that might have been a ploy to turn the people against Jesus. But not all the people had that idea that Jesus was going to be a conquering king. There were those like Simeon who were looking for a savior of a Messiah, and they recognized him when he came. And we see in the Gospels that the people in general, not just the Jewish leaders, but the people in general, often rejected Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 26, when a crowd is following him, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They wanted, as one black preacher says, not a king. They wanted a burger king. They wanted someone to feed their bellies. Later on, as Jesus ratchets, ratchets up his message, a large number of his disciples walk no longer with him. In Mark chapter 6, we saw the response of, of people in his hometown of, of Nazareth when Jesus came there. Let me turn for a moment to Mark chapter 6 and see the response of, of, of the people to Jesus. I'm getting there. Jesus went out from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They stumbled over him. And so the people were guilty in the death of Jesus. They knew of his benevolent ministry, and they allowed themselves to be persuaded by their leaders. In fact, in Matthew's account, the people, not the leaders, dared to say these words in Matthew 27, beginning of verse 21. And Pilate asked them, which of the two do you want me to release? They say, Barabbas. Pilate said, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, 
He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, listen to this. This is not the religious leaders. This is the people, the multitude, the crowd. His blood shall be on us and on our children. No more careless or foolish words have ever been spoken than that by the crowd of Jewish people. Let's take some applications from this, and then we'll come to the Lord's Supper. Again, from a big picture standpoint, recognize the extreme guilt of the Jewish nation in the death of Jesus and the vindication of God's severe judgment upon them in 70 A.D. Not only the Jewish leaders, but the Jewish people, many of whom were the beneficiaries of Jesus' ministry, cried out for him to be crucified and said, his blood be on us, and not only that, but on our children. No wonder that in 70 A.D., God's wrath was poured out through the Roman army upon Jerusalem and Judea, and it was horrible. They say that upwards of a million Jews were killed. Josephus says the blood was running in the streets so profusely that it quenched fires. Now, that may be hyperbole, but there was a lot of bloodshed. Thousands of Jews refusing to submit to Roman authority were crucified by the Romans. And friends, for many centuries, the Jewish people were scattered among the nations and became a byword to the nations. And they suffered brutal persecution and massive genocide. Now, I don't mean that to be an anti-Semitic rhetoric, but it's simply factual history that these, this nation was chosen of God, favored by God, but they rejected and spurned that light in a high-handed way. And God's judgment has come upon them in an extreme way. That's one application. But be reminded of the responsibility we all have to follow faithful guides and not false ones. Yeah, the Jewish leaders had great power over the people to influence them and turn their hearts away from Jesus. But did the people share in the guilt in allowing themselves to be led by those Jewish leaders? I would say yes, they did. Now, when it comes to popular accountability, it does vary. For example, in a nation like China or Iran, People don't have a lot of choice about who their leaders are, do they? Those who protest usually get mowed down and slaughtered. But it's different with the United States, isn't it? We have a democratic republic. How do our leaders get into power? The leaders that rule over us and influence us by their policies. Well, for the most part, we vote them in, don't we? We have certain authority as to who leads us. And so we as a people, as a body politic, need to bear some responsibility for the corrupt, immoral leadership that we now have at a national level, at many state levels, and many local levels. There's a sense in which we get what we want, right? And we're responsible. You can't just blame the leaders. We, as a body politic, voted them in. We got what we wanted. And so there is responsibility on the part of the people. And it's true in the religious realm. Some of you may know that back in 1978, a particular cult leader by the name of Jim Jones led 909 of his followers to commit voluntary suicide in Guyana. 633 of those were adults. 
They drank not Kool-Aid, but what was called Flavor-Aid, laced with, uh, laced with cyanide, and they committed suicide. A wicked, vile, demonic leader. But were those people responsible? Yes. You see, there's a, there's a passage in Scripture that indicates that people are just not ha- hapless dupes. People just don't fall into following cult leaders and false teachings. Here's the principle, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 through 12. Listen to these words. Talking about the coming, future coming of an antichrist. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness. Listen now, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Why do people fall into cults? Why do people follow a Jim Jones even to their death? Why do people submit to false teaching? Yes, false teachers are demonic. Yes, they are manipulative. Yes, they exert a certain power. But ultimately, it's because people refuse to receive the knowledge of the truth. And that's what makes them susceptible to error. And so, friends, the lesson for us is to be careful of the voices that we listen to. You need to be careful about what local church you join. You need to be careful that the men who will teach you are men who are faithful to the word of God and accountable to you to bring the word of God to you. You need to be careful about who you listen to on social media and podcasts. You want to listen to those whose minds and hearts are saturated most with the word of God. So they'll they'll not lead you away from God, but lead you to God. And may I suggest a word, a phrase I've used of myself for a number of years now, I want to be a sanctified eclectic. What that means is I want to take good and truth from wherever I find it, and not one man has all the truth. Not one pastor, no matter how gifted, has all the truth. So be a sanctified eclectic. Take truth wherever you get it, not just from one individual. Now with Jesus, you can take all of Jesus. He's totally trustworthy, But all men, all preachers, all pastors are flawed. They have blind spots. They have imbalances. It's certainly true of me. So don't just listen to one man. Listen to a host of people. Be a sanctified eclectic. Wherever you find truth, follow it. It will not be in one man except the God-man Jesus. Him you can trust completely. And one final application. See how great was the love of Jesus for us that he willingly and lovingly endured the malice of the priests, the cowardice and injustice of Pilate, and the fickleness of the people. And he did so to purchase our salvation. The more we understand and appreciate about what Jesus endured and suffered, the more it should deepen our gratitude to him and our love for him, because he did it all for us, that we might have 